first impressions of Return to Ravnica on episode 17 of So Many Insane Plays. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. In this show, we're going to take a look at Return to Ravnica, at least what's been spoiled as of the PAX party. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us and follow us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. Before we get into our set review, let's talk about some community topics, though. We've got some upcoming tournaments in both of our respective regions. In Michigan, we have two new tournament series starting up on the eastern side of the state, weekly events, in fact, that are being organized at two different locations. On Mondays at RIW Hobbies in Livonia, they're running weekly vintage in the evening. And on Tuesdays at BC Comics in Fenton, we're starting weekly events as well. Now, I would like to make it to those events as much as possible, but they are a bit of a drive for me. I'm going to plan to be there as much as I can. Looking forward to those to playing some vintage in Michigan. And Steve, you've got some upcoming events, or at least another upcoming event in California. That's right. Uh, There is a tournament at the Old World of Games in Vacaville, California. That will take place on September the 22nd. It's 15 proxies, and it is a $20 entry fee. And I think 90% of the entry will be paid out to the top finishers. Um, So show up. I'm going to try to be there. Uh, I currently have it on my calendar, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be my first California tournament. And for those folks in Michigan, I highly encourage you to show up. As well, (laughs) there is a weekly uh, tournament on Monday nights being scheduled in Ohio. I believe it's called at the Fog of Dust on Bethel Road in Columbus. That's a new place, right? Yeah, it's a brand new place just around the corner from where I, in fact, used to live. Dagger. (laughs) (laughs) They were waiting for me to move. (laughs) Yeah, all of our friends there in town were saying just that, that we were stifling their creativity and they are excited for us to be gone so they can finally play so be sure to go to the manager to find out more but you know going to these events is a great way to sort of learn the ins and outs of vintage low entry costs right five dollars a fun way to spend a monday night totally worth it couldn't agree more Uh, another announcement i am very excited to announce that i am working quite hard and diligently on the third edition of my gush book the first edition was released in November of 2010. It was around 100 pages. The second edition I released two months later and was about 150 pages. Uh, the third edition is probably going to be well over 200 pages. Um, I am, I'm sort of working through the whole thing, uh, obviously updating deck lists, you know, a lot of discussion of Doomsday, Cobra Gush, all the new Gush strategies, really deeper look. At Gush with lots of examples and illustrations. 
if you buy the uh, second edition, which is now up on Eternal Central, you can, you'll get the third edition for free. Uh, so my Gush book is for sale again. Uh, we've moved from Quiet Speculation to Eternal Central. And by the way, Eternal Central has amazing content in the last month. Uh, Jason Jaco, who is the editor there, uh, managed to put up uh, the top 32 deck lists from the Legacy Championships. In addition, the top eight deck lists from both of the vintage prelims at Gen Con. Check out Eternal Central. A lot of stuff in there in the last couple weeks you won't want to miss. Before we get into Return to Ravnica, though, let's do a report card on our prior set reviews for Plane Chase and Avacyn Restored. Recently in these set reviews, Steve and I have started predicting top eight appearances for key cards, and now we've got some results to look back on and see exactly how we did. First, I like the fact that we do this because it keeps us honest. Exactly. You, you won't find very many reviewers who actually do this. I do this in my written set reviews. Um, and, and so I think it's a good thing that we're, you know, doing this. So you don't have to keep tally. We'll keep ourselves on. That's right. This is the beginning of a longer term trend. Starting with plane chase, then we should start with baleful Strix, which we were <laughs> very excited to talk about at the time. Your metric for measuring this is very unfair, Kevin. <laughs> well, we can tweak this as we go. Well, let's start with, with how many top eights did we predict baleful Strix would have? I want to make a caveat in this particular, this one example, because we started talking about the Vintage Championships during this review, and so we made a prediction there, but then we switched gears and started talking about top eight appearances in the format as a whole. So this is really the one case... No, 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 wait a second. What? Whenever Whenever we do this, we always say, three months from now, or at the time of the next set review, how many occurrences will a particular card have in top eights, Vintage top eights? Yeah. I would I was trying to be emphatic. I said I think this card is is not only will not only see top eight play. I predicted it would appear in the in the vintage champs top eight. So we didn't really start with the vintage champs top eight. That was made, that was a point that was made for emphasis, I believe. Well, be that as it may, we have predictions for both ends of the spectrum in this case. And in the case Let's, of the vintage champs top eight, we'll start with the top eight appearances, then we'll go to the. Vintage. In the case of total top eight appearances, I predicted none. Steve predicted three. No, no, the, we, I thought we did over-under, right? Because you said <laughs> we, That was something Theo threw in during that episode where he said he wanted to take the under on three. But I tried to, <laughs> I tried to pin him down to a number. No, that we didn't do over-under. We really okay. did okay. A, a solid I, I actually said I actually said three. Yes, you did. And you said none. I said none. And Theo said... Theo said the under on three. Okay. <laughs> and... The results from actual appearances. Actual appearances in top eights, ten, including one tournament victory, and one of those appearances was at a prelim for the vintage champs at Gen Con this year. And, and who was the tournament victory? Pull it up. Me. <laughs> <laughs> that was you at the Team Serious Open in Sandusky, the first time that we played that deck, and you did take first place. So it seems that I may have skewed the results a little bit, but I had to be right on this, Kevin. So I'm. Uh, well, you did take some agency into your own hand, but I, you can't 
be blamed for doing that because the card was good. And also, all the results are clearly not yours. This card has definitely proven itself to be playable and good in the format, and I think it will be for some time to come. Excellent. So I was right, and you were wrong. That's right. In fact, that's going to be a theme of these results. Is I think your performance on the whole was much better than mine. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you were right about... Uh... We both thought Grab Tigger's Cage would be amazing, but you actually accurate, accurately predicted the number. Yeah, well, I don't think I'm always going to be in last place in, between the two of us, but <laughs> <All right. laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Right. We don't need to talk about it much, but for Sakashima students, we all said there were going to be nothing. Well, and wait, really wait a second. Nothing. You, you, didn't, you didn't go to the Minute Champs Top 8. I predicted oh, there would be one. Sorry, let me back up to Baleful Strix. So we both said, okay, <laughs> I said none in the Vintage Champs Top 8. You said one. But I don't think you were entirely serious about that because then we had a pretty lengthy joke about how that was going to be one copy in your sideboard. <laughs> <laughs> so if taken at your word, you were wrong on this one, but I don't think we can be entirely serious. There were no appearances of Baleful Strix in the top eight of Vintage Champs. The, there could have been. <laughs> the cards slash deck, though, was in the room that day. Oh, yeah. There were definitely people playing Baleful Strix at the Vintage Champs, but it didn't make top eight. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Also from Plane Chase, we talked at length about Sakashima's student. I don't even remember what that is, Romani. It's the Ninjutsu clone. Okay. The one that, it costs four mana, basically the same as a regular clone, but it has a Ninjutsu cost of blue one. And we talked at length about how it could possibly be finagled into a Delver-style deck. And what we basically concluded was that you, you didn't want to be there. And that's what the results have borne out. There have been no appearances in top eights. I don't think... No, I don't think there ever will be. <clears throat> One interesting factor, though, in the Plane Chase review, we talked a small bit about Shardless Agent, almost entirely from the standpoint of Legacy, which... Yep that was already somewhat proven. Results had already been made at that point. Right. We totally missed its applications in Vintage, though. We didn't even talk about it. So I guess it's fair to say that we both predicted zero. And it turns out that Shardless Agent has become sort of a mainstay in Noblefish and has wow. made eight, top eight appearances, including one win. I faced Noblefish twice for rounds one and two of the Vintage Champs, actually, and I lost to the first round opponent who was playing Shardless Agent. I, I, I drew against an opponent who had a Shardless Agent. Yeah. So, interestingly, it doesn't have quite as many appearances as Baleful Strix, but both of these cards I would consider to be staples of the metagame at this point. I would, I'd say, I, let's just say vintage playable, for sure. Sure. They're playable and played. Playable and so played. I'm going to go staples. 10, ten eight appearances isn't necessarily a staple. <laughs> I would definitely say it's proven playable. That's fair. That's fair. Any other observations on plane chase at this point, or shall we move on? Uh, two two playables. I mean, that's pretty good. Right? Out of a very small number of cards, they were very aggressive in developing these cards. Yes. Good stuff. Keep keep it coming, Wizards. Yes. If anyone at Wizards is listening to this, good stuff. Let's move on to Avacyn Restored. Now, we did our champion challenger kind of debate format for this at the time. I'm not going to rehash all of that about who is on which side. But I do have some very interesting results, and I do have them in the order in which we covered them in that podcast. 
first up is Temporal Mastery, which we were both very excited about it. We both predicted it was going to be the big winner of this set, and we were both way off. I was more further off than you. I predicted 40 appearances in top eights, which at this point seemed laughable. <laughs> but Steve, you predicted 28, so you were slightly more sane than I am, but we were both way off. There have been two appearances in Vintage. Wow, two. There you go. But here's the thing. I really thought that card was that was keyed for Legacy, and it actually has seen substantial amount of play in Legacy, but not as much as I thought. Yeah, it, you are completely right. I still hold out hope that this effect at that cost is fundamentally powerful in Vintage, and therefore may make a not a it can't make a resurgence without having first once surged, but I think it will make an appearance in the future in the long run. It's inevitable that we will get more cards that are effectively capable of sorting the top of our deck and therefore allowing this to act more like a two mana time walk. There, you know, there are you know Jace's in the format. The problem is the brainstorm is restricted. Yeah. If brainstorm was not restricted, this thing would be all over the place in gosh decks. Yeah. Just be you know, enormously useful. I would say we should keep this one on our long-term watch list, but for now, it did not pan out at all the way we said. Yeah. Next up in the order of our review was Tybalt, which was included more for novelty than any kind of serious consideration. We both predicted zero and have been validated in that prediction. I don't think there's much else we can say about Tybalt. I don't expect him to ever see play. Okay. Moving on, though, to Gristlebrand, where we accurately predicted that this card would see play in decks that cheat creatures into play, specifically Oath. In terms of our predictions, I'll just get to that. Steve, you hit a home run with this one. You actually nailed it exactly, <laughs> which is hilarious because you predicted 11, which is such a, <laughs> which is such a bizarre number, and that was the actual I've... number of appearances. I've been at this game a long time. <laughs> I can say. Well, I mean, I've been doing I've been doing set reviews for a while, and I pay a lot of attention to statistics and data. Well, so. spot on, spot on. <laughs> I predicted four appearances, so I wasn't quite as accurate. But in the terms of the ballpark, we were both right on with how this card would be received and implemented. I'm actually surprised, in retrospect, given how much I would say, you know, how how much Gristlebrand has re- attention it's received in the sort of discourse right rich shea writing an article about his gristlebrand oath um you know uh brian demars writing it i mean just based upon sort of uh guesswork retrospective i would have thought you know about 23 you know right but but i guess i'm I'm glad i I predict 11 (laughs) well i'd like to point out two interesting things about gristlebrand's performance one We talked about it in a number of contexts. We talked about it, obviously, in Oath. We talked about it in context of Rituals, Show and Tell, and Dread Return, or Dredge. Its appearances have almost entirely been restricted to Oath decks. There have been some attempts, and you mentioned Rich Shays just recently, to combine this card with Dark Ritual. And some of the Oath decks in question are Ritual Oath decks, which only exist because of Gristlebrand. I don't even think they run for... Do they run for rituals, or do they... Some of them run maybe less? Well, I'm not sure. uh, one of them that performed at the Vintage Pre- Champs Prelim, actually, was a four-ritual oath deck. Okay. The other one was an oath deck without rituals, though. And in general, his performance has been restricted to just oath decks without rituals. Of course, the ritual thing has been a recent uh, concept. 
it, it was only a couple of weeks ago that Rich posted on the drain about how you could make this combination and it would work. And so it's only been since about early mid-July that the whole ritual thing has even been considered. Interestingly, though, the other point is that we talked a fair bit about his impact on dredge and dread return. And yeah. that hasn't really manifest at all. Well, I think the big the reason for that is the dread return is just inferior. It's just not you. Yeah, it has interacted with another trend that you've just described exactly. And that dread return has been disappearing from that archetype. I love it when you say archetype. <laughs> I'll leave it to you say archetype like Brian Demar says dex. Yeah, well, I was going to say I was going to say you we both, could leave it to in those words and they mean the same thing to you both. <clears throat> Rehash that that discussion from I think no. the second episode if anybody wants to have a really fun semantic argument with their friends especially friends who are very literate and or verbose then just talk <laughs> talk about the significance between the difference of those words and it, hours of entertainment strategy and decks mm -hmm. yeah that was one of our earlier episodes <laughs> oh yeah strategy and tactics is another good one yeah Anyway, that's the, by the way, that's the new subtitle of my Gush book. Nice. Understand, I've changed it from Understanding Gush, I think it was Strategy to Win More, to Understanding Gush, Strategy and Tactics. <laughs> I actually thought about making it Understanding Gush, Strategy, Tactics, and Theory, but it's just too long of a subtitle. Sorry, I can only hear that subtitle as irony at this point. <laughs> I was thinking that you could have chose something like the dignitude of strategery, <laughs> but I'm not trying to be insulting. It's just funny. Oh God! Continue, sir. Yeah, one of the subpoints of our discussion on Gristlebrand was his impact on the presence of Sun Titan and whether or not those decks that were trying to dread return Sun Titans into play would switch to dread returning Gristlebrands and. The short answer is that question was rendered moot because Dread Return has been disappearing. Right. And so we don't really have a good answer. But it seems as though Gristlebrand and Sun Titan are still existing in about equal quantities in Dread Return at this point. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, we expect the Gristlebrand, I think, to be a, a pretty common oath target for the foreseeable future until they print something else ridiculous. Let's be clear, though. This is the number of decks that had... Or archetypes, if you... Know, <laughs> number of decks that had uh, crystal brands, not the number of crystal brands. That's exactly right. It is almost always a one or a two of... Mostly two of in these oath builds. Sometimes a three of, right? Not never a three of? I don't think in any of the... Appear I'm sorry, in any of the results that you can see on Morphling.D... Was he a three of? Let me see. Two, 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 one, two, three. There's one. Two, 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 two. I, I like three. I like someone did did math on that. So. It's worth noting that the list with three was a show and tell list. If it's a show and tell list, it makes much more sense. Right, let's move on. I'm going to come back to Gristlebrand in a minute when we talk about our results for Avacyn Restored. Let's move on to Reforge the Soul, which that is. for those of you following along at home, that's the Miracle Wheel of Fortune. Five converted mana cost, two mana to wheel. I'm sorry, Miracle. And we were kind of overzealous in our predictions here. Both of us were. I predicted 10, you predicted 6, the actual was 1. And the good news is, for our prediction ability, <clears throat> that the 1 was in a deck exactly like what we discussed. a Basically a belcherless belcher list, where it had 2 copies, which is something we discussed, 2 copies of this wheel, 4 copies of Empty the Warrens, and no belchers. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I would. I I, I think I was slightly overzealous. I said six. Yeah. Thinking back, I should have predicted one to four, maybe one to five, but I wasn't too far out of the range. You were way beyond. That. <laughs> hey, ten and six are not that far apart, all right. <laughs> but it's important to note that I think we both just oversold how in general this card would promote a combo deck when in reality even if it makes belcher slightly better belcher's a one in ten tournaments kind of appearance anyway and so if we thought about it a little longer i think even though we accurately predicted its role we were just not thinking of the right numbers in general yeah exactly i mean I, like i said i think one to three would be would have been a very fair prediction yeah i agree i think the most interesting one so we were way off on temporal mastery Gristlebrand, we were pretty spot on reforge the soul we were close a little overzealous the most interesting one of these to discuss from a historical standpoint is cavern of souls now let's get the numbers out of the way first i predicted four steve predicted 13 the actual was 18 now very interestingly, though, is how that 18 is actually manifest. When we talked about the card, and we talked at length about its applications, it was almost entirely from a multicolor beatdown slash tribal kind of strategy. And I took a closer look of the 18 that I mentioned. The first few of them, the first, say, three or four, were actually that. Mostly white-based, but multicolor aggressive decks trying to make their creatures uncounterable and to compete. Since about a month after its printing, though, that archetype <laughs> laugh, that archetype has disappeared. There's no more no more appearances by multicolor beatdown. They've all been Bomberman with a splash of mud. When when we had finished recording that episode, I, had, I it, it occurred to me that I'd forgotten to mention its potential in mud. Yeah, we bo- we both completely skipped that. No, no, but I had implicitly been thinking that it was playable in mud. I just for, we just forgot to dis- to discuss it. Okay. You're completely right. So the appearances lately, in fact, the most recent results, of which there is one in the Vintage Championships Top 8, Mike Guthrow's Bomberman list, this card has become almost a staple in Bomberman to the tune of two copies. Makes sense. Just to be clear, Bomberman. <laughs> well, it's in both, actually. We all agree, I mean, we in this podcast agree that the Bob lists of Bomberman are probably superior, but it's become a staple in both blue-white and blue-white-black lists. And also, in our previous review, we talked a lot about Avon Mind Sensor, specifically about how this card helps Avon Mind Sensor, because that card is designed to... You don't want to have to protect it. You don't want to have to devote resources to your Avon Mind Sensor resolving. This card is perfect for that, because it allows you to just slip it in there and not have to worry too much about it, but it makes it much more reliable. You know it's going to resolve. You don't have to protect it. Exactly. Ironically, though, in the Bob-based... Bomberman lists, the Avon Mind Sensor is usually the thing to get the axe and replaced with Dark Confidant, at which point this card just ramps up the synergy with the existing tribal sub-theme that existed in that deck before. So it it turns out that Cavern of Souls has the most top 8 appearances from Avacyn Restored. It is clearly the winner. That's right. So Uh, It it has one-third more appearances, uh, 33% more appearances than Gristlebrand. That said... I, I predict if we take out the temporal mastery, <laughs> you know, I, I predicted Cavern of Souls would be the most played card from the set. I had 11 Gristlebrand, 13 Cavern of Souls, so I got that right. If we take out temporal mastery, <laughs> that's right. And if we take out temporal mastery, I was still far too overzealous on Reforge the Soul, but I had Cavern of Souls and Gristlebrand second and tied for second at that point. 
So our observations on how these cards would be implemented in terms of Gristlebrand, Reforge the Soul, Cavern of Souls, and Tybalt, (laughs) we're spot on about how they'd be implemented. The numbers, we didn't get them very right in terms of Temporal Mastery, but the rest are pretty good. I I would give our overall scorecard for Avacyn Restored, I would give it a B, maybe a B plus. I think that's right. 88%. 88%, that's right. I like it. No more, no less. 88%. Any other questions or comments on Avacyn Restored, Steve? Not really. I, I just think that if there's a trend, it seems to be that the, the cards that constitute the themes, like the thematic cores of these sets, aren't the cards that are necessarily seeing play. It's the, it's the specialized, unique function cards that are really seeing play in Vintage. You know, so, and I think that that's held true through Innistrad Block. I think that that holds with the way they design cards for Vintage in general. Mm-hmm. They don't create set mechanics like, say, Flashback or, for Vintage. They, don't, yeah. they didn't create Miracles for Vintage. They just create certain niche cards to fill certain needs, and those cards are the ones that we zero in on. Unique effects or unique new effects or somehow more powerful effects like Gristlebrand. I look forward to many set reviews in the future. We've only got a few under our belt for the podcast. As you said, you're old hat at this, and it's a very fun exercise. Well, let's, let's get to it. I'm excited to take a look at the Return to Ravnica. brings us to Return to Ravnica, which we are very excited about. We read through the spoiler and found the cards that we thought were worth discussing for Vintage. We also reached out to you on Twitter, solicited your ideas, and they matched ours pretty closely. So we're going to review all those things that you recommended as well. First up, though, Jace, Architect of Thought. Steve, what do you think? Fascinating card. I like how, you know, it's kind of interesting. Architect of Thought implies that it's creating something, whereas the Mind Sculptor is sculpting something that's already there, I think. so. Interesting. I'm not sure that distinction actually bears out in the way they developed this card, though, as I look through its abilities. So this is the fourth Jace. Is that accurate? That's right. And if you have any Jace in play, you can't have any others. There can be no others in play. Well, any Jace in play is removed by another Jace being played. So shall we run down our normal criteria for whether or not this card is vintage playable? Do it. Starting with the casting cost. Now, for those of you who maybe haven't seen the spoiler, maybe I should run down the whole card. The converted mana cost is four. Blue, blue, two. Just like Jace the Mind Sculptor, he has three abilities, plus one, minus two, minus eight, and his starting loyalty is four. I think you should tell our, our listeners what those abilities are. Okay, I'll do it. Plus one. Until your next turn, whenever a creature an opponent controls attacks, it gets minus one, minus zero until end of turn. Minus two. Reveal the top three cards of your library. An opponent separates those cards into two piles. Put one pile into your hand and the other on the bottom of your library in any order. And minus eight. For each player, search that player's library for a non-land card and exile it. Then that player shuffles his or her library. You may cast those cards without paying their mana costs. A very interesting set of abilities and no real interaction between them, interestingly. 
I think I think that might actually be one of the key problems with this card. But let, let's analyze let's analyze the abilities separately and then then go to that point. Sure. The casting cost matches that of Jace the Mind Sculptor, which is simultaneously a confirmation and a damnation for this card. <laughs> but we can get to that later, I think, after we've reviewed the abilities. So the first ability, which you're going to be needing to use a fair bit if you want to get to the ultimate, but you may never use. This ability is obviously written to be multiplayer friendly. It's pretty important to note for multiplayer that it doesn't say whenever it attacks you. It's very careful when it says whenever a creature and opponent controls attacks. So if your opponents are fighting each other, they also do worse that way. Very interesting multiplayer design. But for Vintage, to shrink opponent's attackers by one power has very little application. Totally agreed. In fact, it has some very key failings <laughs> at keeping you alive, specifically with regard to Blightsteel Colossus. Totally agree. And therefore, this ability is almost completely inert in Vintage. It'll save you or your Jace possibly a couple of damage in certain contexts like facing a dark confidant but in almost any other scenario it's going to be almost null i agree i think this is the worst top ability of any of the big planeswalkers that currently see play in vintage you have to look at jace the mind sculptor and you have to look at both of the tesserets Mm -hmm. i think if we compare the top ability to the those three planeswalkers it's inferior yeah i mean i'd rather untap artifacts at least I get it untap a time vault or potentially, you know, soul ring or whatever. This is this is just completely I, I think your word inert captures it. It's pretty much useless. If this card were playable, it wouldn't be because of this ability at all. This ability could have a blank text and you would still plus it if you really right. <laughs> just wanted to plus. Plus one, do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> plus one. Add a counter, loyalty counter to Jace. <laughs> exactly. So it could it could have the flavor text of Null Rod right here. <laughs> it would have the same effect. This this this, this uh, plus one is goggles. Nice, nice. All right, Steve. Why don't you talk then about the whole meat of this card, which is the minus two ability? Okay, the minus two ability is however you want to look at it. Murmurs from Beyond, Mini Factor Fiction. Obviously, the key critical question here. Um, the First, it looks at top three, the top three cards. Whereas Jace the Mind Sculptor draws you three cards, you have to return two from your hand. It, it, this will actually net you two, no matter what, if you want, right? Unless it's like two terrible cards, it will always net you. In other words, this card will at least net you one card. Mm-hmm. It won't just replace itself. It will net you a card. So in terms of just pure card advantage, that is actually superior to any of the other other things Jace the Mind Jace, the original Jace just replaces itself immediately, right? Jace the Mind Sculptor replaces itself, plus card quality and therefore virtual card advantage. But setting that aside, just in terms of strict card advantage, this is the first one. I mean in Tezzeret, you know, replaces itself by putting an artifact into play. This is the first one actually nets you a card. A very good point. Although it's obviously worth taking a functional look at that as well. One of the things that is is often turned up in Vintage is that, for example, if you play Factor Fiction and they split it four and one and you take the one or you split it three and two and you take the two, it's not we, – we, in Vintage, we don't look strictly at technical card advantage. We often look at virtual card advantage. And so if you take a two pile, you might take the two pile because the other car, the card in the three pile has, say, flashback. Or is a big artifact that you're going to return into play with Goblin Welder. A good example of this is Thirst for Knowledge, right? 
Thirst for Knowledge says draw three cards, discard two cards unless you discard an artifact. Well, it often turns out to be the case that when you discard that artifact, you want that artifact to be in the graveyard so that you can reanimate it with Goblin Model. So that, strictly speaking, you're only netting one card with with Thirst for Knowledge, but you're actually netting two because you can't actually cast that Pentavis or that Mindslaver. What your plan is is to discard it so that you can reanimate it with Goblin Welder. So... That is where this card actually has a flaw. Graveyard strategies and using graveyards are quite popular in Vintage. Snapcaster Mage is, everywhere, is, is quite popular right now. The fact that this card doesn't put one of those cards in the graveyard is a hit against it. You want that third card to go to the graveyard and not the bottom of your library so that you can potentially get more juice out of it. I agree completely, and it's very interesting to me that they chose the way that they did it might have something to do with the theme of Ravnica. It might have something to do with the fact that they wanted to power down this card, that they were afraid to make another Jace the Mind Sculptor level problem for standard, perhaps. Well, maybe it's also because Snapcaster Mage is so prevalent. I don't know. Well, you, you make a very good point. Coming off of Innistrad block, there's just so much synergy to be had with the graveyard that they must have been keeping that in mind and trying to avoid that particular level of power in standard that's too bad for this card too bad for vintage at least mm-hmm. although i would say that would not have put it over the top i don't think and the other the other thing to keep in mind though is that while jace the mind sculptor only doesn't actually net a card on its first activation the card quality is so strong that it's almost as if you're netting a card right and the brainstorm ability costs zero <laughs> so so every turn the net the second turn it's in play you've netted a card. Whereas the second turn that this card's in play, you've still netted just one card. <laughs> you, unless you want to use this that ability again and, and, and kill this thing, you are, uh, you're netting, you've netted just one card. I agree completely. I think it makes sense to evaluate Jace's Brainstorm ability as somewhere between one and two cards on average. It's worth yep. about one and a half cards. Sometimes, if you're holding your Blightsteel Colossus, it's straight up worth two cards. You converted a total blank into something playable. You've just played Gush. It's a lot better than that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about the third ability, then. The third ability is obviously very exciting. If you could play it, use it. It's, I mean, it is, go ahead. I was, I'm sorry. You're, you're completely right. It's just that the amount you would have to invest to get to this one is so painful. Yeah. Yeah, so let, but let's just talk, in terms of that ability, that ability is most certainly vintage playable. Absolutely. You could play this right now, and I'm going to put White Steel Colossus into play, or I'm going to play Yogmas Will, or I'm going to play whatever. It's, this card, it's going to probably win the game. I agree. I want to point out that this hits each player. So you search your library and your opponents, and if you're in a blue mirror, you can assemble Key Vault that way. Absolutely. You'll take their key, the, your vault. That, that is going to win the game. Mm-hmm. The problem, of course, is, is the number of turns it takes. So just in terms of the ability, it's playable, but the problem is the number of turns it takes to, to achieve that ability. Absolutely. With, coming into play with four loyalty, you literally have to take no less than four additional turns to activate that, which means that this is five turns in This has to be in play for five turns to get that activation. Five turns after this is cast. In Vintage, the game is long over. And at the same time, the plus one ability is not just not doing anything to help you maintain the game state. Exactly. Even if if the first ability was plus two, you wouldn't get there fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's a very important comparison with Jace the Mind Sculptor. Some people might say, well, Jace the Mind Sculptor goes ultimate in vintage, right? That does happen. And that's true because Jace helps. Jace's plus ability helps you propagate the game state that allowed you to start using it. Exactly. You can, it allows you to survive. You can get into a pattern where it's a self-replicating process, and <laughs> the ability that he's applying to you or your opponent is actually furthering the ability to keep going. Well put. And this card this has card none of that. It has none of that, which is so disappointing. I mean, and now that I think about it, it could even have plus three because <laughs> plus three, it would it literally would take three turns after this is in play for you to activate that because the first plus three would take it to seven. The next would take it to ten. Then the third turn after, you get to use the ultimate. <laughs> so it could actually have plus three, and it's still you probably still wouldn't get to that point. This reminds me a bit of our discussion about Azure Mage from M12, where we talked about what would the cost have to be in order for it to be playable in Vintage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were proposing that it could be much less, it could be half as much, and still barely Vintage playable. Yeah. And I would agree. This this plus ability, this minus ability could be minus one, and it still yeah. might not be Vintage playable. Now that's, yeah. it, well, you would use it, don't forget me wrong, that would be the go-to ability well, at if, minus one. If the minus ability was minus one, then you could use it immediately and the next turn, and then you would net You'd have net netted uh, two. two cards by the second turn. I think that is a, and then by the third turn, you're just netting a card. You're you're, you're uh, way ahead. Yeah, that, you're actually, I'm sorry. You you netted three cards by turn two. Then that ability would be definitely playable. I, I now that we've had this discussion, I hadn't thought about it. I have two thoughts. First, I kind of think the proper way to use this card is to use the minus two ability immediately, and then the minus two ability again the next turn. Yeah. If you use that way, you net three cards out of it. But at that point, why would you not have just played, say, concentrate? <laughs> well, well, there is a good reason. I mean, you've dug six cards down. Yes, except by virtue of the way the ability is constructed. If you're digging for answers, you can't yeah. get both the answers you want and high card quantity. You can't have quality and quantity with this card. I don't want to underestimate that. I mean, being able to put four cards in your hand in two turns is not trivial. Mm-hmm. The best four of six. Well, as we've seen with Ponder and its subsequent restriction, the ability to look through a high number of cards is still very highly prized in Vintage. Exactly. And this card, after two turns, barring things like Fetchlands and Shuffling, this card by itself will actually see you further into your deck than Jace the Mind Sculptor will. Exactly. And you'll have netted more cards. You'll, I mean, you'll have netted three cards by turn two. That's not bad. Yeah, true. Okay, so going back to the Azure Mage point that you just made a moment ago this is my second point Mm -hmm. i would say this would be vintage playable if the first ability was plus four (laughs) because because then it would be akin to tesseret you would get to you you know it wouldn't really do much the first turn but the second turn allows you to go to essentially win the game plus you have this intermediate step so if i was designing this card for vintage i would make the first ability plus four don't you think that's a little dangerous at a converted mana cost of four compared to five for tesseret no because you can attack if you someone just does one damage to it then you can't use the ultimate well the same is basically true for tesseret assuming you searched up a time vault he's at two loyalty no because you can do one damage to tesseret and they can still go infinite you really think that difference between one and two is significant in this format the only creature that we have that sees any play that attacks for one is goblin welder baleful strix yeah that's as we discussed before not a not a staple I think it does matter. I think it matters. I think that's a razor's edge there. I don't think 
I like the idea of having something that wins next turn for four mana in this format. Between The difference between four and five is the thing that keeps Tezzeret, well, one of the things that keeps Tezzeret from being highly dominant. There are also, well, I wouldn't say that. I think that there's a number of things that keep Tezzeret from being highly dominant. One of, it's one of the things, yes. But one of the things, first of all, Lightning Bolt is everywhere now. Secondly, uh, Delver Secret seems a lot of play. Delver Secret, by the way, is a 1-1. One, one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, occasionally. That's not to be, not to be ignored. Yeah. I would say we're getting pretty far afield here, that redesigning this card for Vintage could take a number of different paths. And if it was plus four on his first ability, then yes, absolutely. This card goes from pedestrian to playable. Yeah. I just also think that the biggest flaw in this card is the actual system flaw, which is that the abilities don't interface well. So that like with Liliana is one of the great examples of a card whose abilities mutually reinforce each other in a broader scaffolding. Which Liliana? The three casting cost one. Okay. You know, the first one does something that then allows you to make the next natural play. Mm-hmm. This doesn't really support each other at all. Every single ability is at odds with the other. I kind of feel like this is a real missed opportunity. And and frankly, I I think the other problem is the Jason the Mind Sculptor is so good. The only reason I could think of this would see play, unless that using that two ability, that second ability, twice in a row turns out to be very good, which I wouldn't rule out. Problem is that if your opponent has a Jason play, you're just playing this to kill theirs. And you're probably maxing out on Jace's before on Jace the Mind Sculptor before you even have one of these. But the the third thing I was going to say earlier that I'd forgotten was that an, another thing that has kept Tezzeret in check is Phyrexian Revoker. Uh, very good point. Yes, Phyrexian Revoker has made powerful waves throughout the planeswalking community in Vintage. So I think my, my chief criticism of this card is not any of the individual abilities, it's the way in which they interface. The, the, it comes into play with too few loyalty to ever realistically reach the ultimate, and the first ability does not allow you to realistically reach the ultimate, and the second, it, is, it takes so much loyalty off the card that you can only use it once, you know, bef- without risking losing it. If, the lo- if this card had loyalty 5, this would be a different story, because you could use it twice for too many facts, Still have it around, build it back up mm-hmm. while you ha- while you're you know using your card advantage to great effect. Unless this card using that mini fact ability twice in a row is strong enough, this card won't see play. And it's it's not just that, but it's also standing next to Jace the Mind Sculptor, where if that mini fact ability, if that Murmurs of the Beyond ability is good enough, then Jace's Brainstorm ability is frequently also good enough but on a better card yes so the point at which the double murmurs of beyond ability becomes the key seems very very marginal the difference between that and say jace the mind sculptor in a deck filled with fetch lands where as soon as you factor a fetch land into double brainstorming with jace then you're talking about seeing six cards compared to this six cards this card might be actually a great example of the flaw of looking narrowly at just strict card advantage without thinking about card quality and virtual card advantage. Yeah. This is yeah. the, you know, I mean, because if you line them up, well, this actually creates more card advantage on a faster time frame. I feel as though this card smacks of being the child of a very self-aware development environment. I've heard some people talking online about how this first ability is something of a reaction to tokens in standard, lingering souls and the like. Soren, Lord of Innistrad, etc. And that, combined with the fact that its second ability has clearly been hampered by the, the omnipresence of Innistrad block and flashback, means that this card maybe started out life as one thing, 
but was morphed through design and development to become this thing that doesn't really fit any role that you want it to other than being a headliner in the next block. When you look at a planeswalker, you should almost never look at its ultimate as the reason to evaluate it. We've said this a number of times, and we're not the only ones. So really, this card has two abilities that are unrelated to each other and unrelated to its ultimate and just don't get you anywhere in combination, in concert. I agree. That, I think that's, again, like I said, my, my two prisms. So yeah. let's make some predictions now, unless we have anything to add. No, I'm good. What do you think? I'm going to... S- I'm going to say that I think this card will have no more than two vintage top eights appearances. I have to put a number on it. I'll say I think this will appear in one vintage top eight over the next three months. Fascinating. You think someone is going to try this out and have some success with it, even though it's not Jace the Mind Sculptor? Yes. I think that I, I'm not willing to write off, like I said, using the second ability twice in a row. Mm-hmm. Well, I am willing to write that off. And mostly because we still haven't seen enough people graduate from three to four Jace the Mind Sculptors. And this card, in my opinion, has no hope of seeing play until the point at which people have four Jace the Mind Sculptors and feel like they want more. So I'm predicting a solid zero for this, and I'll be surprised if I'm wrong. Okay, I'm, g- I'm going with one. <laughs> All right. Well, you have the better track record in recent history, so our f- our fans, I think, should sit on the edge of their seat and see what they're going to <laughs> see what they're going to get. This is a riveting question. Exactly. Next up, we have Goblin Electromancer. He is a Goblin Wizard, casting cost red blue, two two. His text box is instant and sorcery spells you cast cost one colorless mana less to cast. So this this is a mana cost reducing grizzly bear. We've talked at length about the value of grizzly bears in vintage. So the converted mana cost is of two is obviously there. The actual mana cost of red blue is somewhat unique in the environment at the moment, but still clearly castable. The primary reason I included this card on the list is because it immediately reminded me of another card, that being Helm of Awakening. Yep. It's been a number of years. It hasn't been in recent history, but Helm of Awakening was actually featured in a handful of different combo decks over the years. Academy decks. Academy decks, yes, and some Infinite Storm combo decks involving Sensei's Divining Top. Now, that's a pretty niche interaction, pretty specific. But I bring it up mostly because cost reducers are always candidates for combos, and in Vintage, ones that reduce the cost of instants and sorceries have ancillary applications as being just good value cards. This card could pay you back to the tune of two, three, four mana over the course of a game easily. So maybe it goes into some kind of combo or combo control deck that's getting value over time and possibly a instant kill finish through some machinations. I don't have anything in mind for this in particular. I did call out in my own notes that this card interacts very favorably with Mana Morphos both before and after it's in play, because Mana Morphos allows you to cast this card having only one color of mana, being red or green. And it also, once this card's in play, makes Mana Morphos an insanely valuable card, mana and card advantage. This card also interacts with some of the past combo and or control cards like Cobble Ritual, Accumulated Knowledge, and Intuition, and all the red rituals, as well as Pyromancer Ascension, which has never really had its day in Vintage, but I think is poised on the precipice. Steve, what do you think about this guy? Well, I guess let's start with the mana cost. I can't think of a single card that costs blue-red that currently sees play in Vintage. So that is an impediment to making a grounded or empirical prediction about whether this card will see play. I'm not going to rule it out because Baleful Strix is black-blue and sees play, but 
Red seems to me to be a lesser color than black, although not by much. What do you think in terms of the casting cost? Well, you're absolutely right that there isn't anything that shares that mana cost that's played today. There are seven cards in the history of Magic that have that mana cost, and none of them need apply in Vintage. But I think it's, I, but I think it's indicative of a larger concept, which is something you and I have discussed maybe a little bit on the air, but a lot off the air, and that's about the nature of converted mana costs compared to colored mana costs in yeah. vintage. I'll set this out. I'll set this out for our, you, our you go ahead. Our list. Basically, in vintage, one of the key ways to play spells is through Moxon. In, in whereas in Legacy, on turn one you're playing a one casting cost spell, on turn two a two casting cost spell, and turn three a three casting cost spell, or a combination of one and two casting cost spells. In vintage, you can play reliably a two casting cost spell on turn one, or if you're playing a workshop deck, a four casting cost spell. But the only because the workshop provides two additional mana. The point is that the Moxon allow you to reliably play two casting cost spells, but only if they're a mana and a colorless. So Dark Confidant, Lotus Cobra, you know, Tarmogoyf. These are car- turn one plays in Vintage because they cost a manaless and a, a mana, a colorless and a and a and one. And the reason is because you don't have to have any specific Mox to play it. So if you're having a two-casting-cost creature or spell that has two-mana requirements, it's essentially a turn-two play, and functionally, basically a two-and-a-half to three-casting-cost spell because it's a turn-two play. And for those who, who didn't follow that last bit, you're because of the Moxon, create a scenario where your turn-one mana is reliably at a colorless and a colored. Your turn-two mana is reliably two colors and a colorless, which means... The mana scale for how your mana develops turn over turn in Vintage kind of goes one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, uh, something like that, within reason. And the cards that have the most value are those ones that have the one colored mana and the one colorless, so that you can really maximize the scale of going one, two, three. Yeah. So as we've hit on before, many cards which would be normally very powerful in Vintage are hampered by the fact that they're two designated. Some good examples of that are meddling mage that's one that i'm example yeah that we would just love to be playing that on turn one with a land and a mox but you just can't do it reliably you can only do it if you're playing five mox and you can only do it two-fifths of the time if you're doing basic math and that just isn't reliable right this is a turn two play is the point exactly which means if you're trying to be a combo deck a turn two play that just gets you started and then you'd have to have another mana to even have any benefit on turn two is very tricky to make work. Kevin, I perceive some dismissiveness in your, <laughs> your evaluation, which I find to be kind of interesting since you have suggested this card for evaluation. I would have suggested it as well. <laughs> but I think to be entirely fair to this card, the question we have to ask is, how would you maximize this card? This card, if it sees play, will see play because of synergies. I mean, there have been lots of cards. You said Helm of Awakening. Another card is Sapphire Medallion. Mm-hmm. Remember how Sapphire Medallion in extended tricks you know donate illusions allowed you to play both the illusions and donate for i think a grand total of five mana Mm -hmm. Uh, this card i think you need to really look specifically at how would you break it i'm surprised you didn't mention the one card that i think this actually creates the most synergy with and that's passed into flames passed into flames allows you to play multiple cards per turn at much reduced costs very interesting and i didn't think of that example mostly because i didn't i consider that to be more of a dedicated combo route very highly synergistic don't get me wrong but i consider that to be more of a dedicated combo route with kind of a big finish and 
I didn't even think that this card would create a deck that was viable that had that as its primary goal. I believe that if this card is to succeed, it's going to do so in a deck that gets incremental advantage a la combo control. That's what I disagree with you. I think Passing the Flames is a combo control deck, not a dedicated... Remember, if you... If, I see. If our listeners go back to Innistrad, I was a big skeptic on it, Passing the Flames in both my written, published set review and in our audio set review in our podcast. And I and I just think people had it totally wrong. I I was right about Passing the Flames. And I think that uh, Passing the Flames is like a two-up. It should be used like the Ogmas will not in the dedicated combo deck, one that generates card advantage, survives at the mid-game, and then wins with passing the flames. I think that's a natural fit with this card. Well, that's, nat- natural that's fit, fit, I would agree. Actual competitive archetype, though, I don't. Well, there has to be some scaffolding between it. There has to be something that bridges passing the flames and Goblin Electromancer. I just set up what I think was a possibility. I think to give this card a fair evaluation, we have to say, what are the possibilities? What are the strongest synergies? Now, if I'm going to start undercutting it, here's where I would begin. I'd begin undercutting it by saying all the sorceries and instants in vintage right now don't really gain much by costing one less. You look at what are the most played instants and sorceries. They're free, force of will, mental misstep, gush, or they're very, very cheap. Spell Pierce, Fluster Storm, Duress, Thoughtseize, right? I mean, these are not spells that really gain anything by costing one less. And those that do are restricted. Demonic Tutor, Thirst for Knowledge. What are you actually reducing the casting cost of? That's the question. I would agree. And I think that you have to look at, well, obviously, you're looking at two and three mana things, but you have to start with what's played on the fringes of the format that gets much better by costing half as much. That's where I look at things like Manamorphose and Accumulated Knowledge with Intuition to go with them. Well, you know what? In- intuition Accumulated Knowledge is an extremely interesting mm-hmm. possibility. And it also plays into your Past in Flames example. I was, going to, I was going to actually go in the direction of Factor Fiction. I think Factor Fiction you know, costing three is phenomenal with this and also plays into Past in Flames. But I think it's possible that Intuition AK is actually just the best here. Intuition AK does what Sapphire Medallion does for donate illusions. This intuition AK then becomes essentially two mana and one mana for each AK. So it's three mana to intuition AK. So you can play this on turn two and then intuition AK twice on turn three. I think that has especially nice interaction because of how your turns are going to progress because of the converted mana cost of this card requiring you to be on turn two. I mean, the actual mana cost. If you plan your turns in a perfect world... You would want to play a spell that costs two on turn one with this deck and have it be okay. You want to play something that costs a blue and a colorless on turn one. It's easy. You can play Dark Confidant on turn one. Good, plenty of examples. That's easy to do. On turn two, you're going to be casting this card, and you might have a colored mana to work with, or you might not. Two-fifths of the time, give or take, you're going to have an extra red or blue to work with with your cheaper, now, two-mana spell. But then on three, on turn three... Theoretically, you're going to untap with this guy and have two or three colored mana to work with, and your AKs only cost one, and your intuition only costs two, and that's where things really explode. Right. So, right. So, essentially, this is on turn two. You play this turn two, and on turn three, you play intuition AK AK. Yeah. Drawing. So that where your opponent is doing Jace, you're drawing seven cards on turn three. That's where this card becomes nuts. And then you play Past in Flames or Yawgmoth will the next turn and win the game. Yeah. 
that's what I'm picturing, and I'm just not sure if you can build that deck such that it survives the modern metagame. I actually think also this card is fine with Factor Fiction. Making Factor Fiction cost three seems pretty good. You could also play in the same deck, Mana Leak. Oh, absolutely. Counterspells, well, geez, if you're looking at counterspells that cost two or three mana that get way better with this, then the list is long. Remand. Well, Mana Leak is a card that's playable, but then it's a playable card, but then becomes even better with this. Yeah. And by the way, Mana Leak is a turn one play. So if you want your Mox Land play, Mana Leak, and then turn two this, turn three, Intuition AK. Very interesting. Intuition AK on turn three with Mana Leak protection, too. <laughs> and then AK on turn four, yep. for four on turn four. That's actually quite, uh, that's fine. This card might actually be playable. Another card that this reminds me of that it doesn't say that it dovetails deck-wise, but is it Killed Mage? Back on the first Ravnica, for a similar casting cost that was hybrid mana, is it Guild Mage costs two and allowed you to pay mana to do extra things. That fills a similar role in terms of taking an existing, well, somewhat existing approach, meaning combo control with multi, with lots of spells and very few creatures, and then shoehorning in this two-mana guy that makes all your spells much better. That's true. And is it Gilmage actually appeared in a couple of his top eights? I think this guy's better. So. Yes, I agree. I think this guy's a lot better. He has a lot more synergy with the format, and he's going to have a lot more powerful effect. I, I think we can turn to predictions. I was inclined to say this guy would see no vintage top eights. I would not be surprised if he, see, if he appears in a couple. I'll say two. I agree with you. I don't think this is going to become a dominant strategy by any stretch, but I think it's playable, and I think a clever deck builder can come up with something. So I'm going to take... I think we just did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say one. I'm going to hedge and say one. All right. I'll take the two. I'm comfortable with two. All right. Coming up next, we have the very exciting Judge's Familiar. This card has people all excited for a number of reasons. Not only its name, its mana cost, everything, it's just, it's got a little bit of something for everyone. I'll go through it. The mana cost is one Azorius hybrid, blue-white. 1-1 creature, bird, flying, sacrifice Judge's Familiar, counter target instant or sorcery spell unless its controller pays one. And for those of you who are thinking back, this card is pretty much just an Azorius flying bird version of the Merfolk Curse Catcher. And all those other factors, Azorius flying bird, are the differentiators and cause it to be very exciting from a deck construction standpoint, I think. Steve, what's your first thought when you see this exciting bird? Well, to be honest, my first thought is I think probably the most important point, which is that the the value of this card is not just that this card exists, but that you can actually play eight of this card now. Interesting. And how and how annoying that's going to be. <laughs> you remember Kevin Mark Perez's infamous UR fish deck. Oh yes. What you, might, what you might not remember is that he used four spike tail hatchling. Oh yes, I remember. Very good. Card. I mean, Curse catcher is incredibly playable in vintage, and this card is equally so. I don't think that the fact that this card is not a merfolk is really um, a disqualifier. I think the fact that it can be played in white trash for mono-white beat decks is a good thing. It's a it's a dro- one-drop in mono-white beat decks. So you can play turn one this, turn two Talia, turn three Stony Silence. Good luck. That's a very powerful sequence. Very disruptive. I, I like this card a lot. I think that, and I also think it's going to be interesting to see it be played in you know eight of this card. How frustrating will that be to base? 
very interesting. I think you're completely right on all fronts. And the fact that this card has so many diverse applications in Vintage, ironically, I think is going to lead to more interesting decks that play it. It's it's not as though this card... More appearance. Yeah, it's right. There's going to be more appearances at the end of our analysis here because you can play it in mono-white, you can play it in white X. I, I don't know if you would add it to a dedicated Merfolk deck per se, which is where Curse Catcher's place has been recently. But any deck that's trading on Curse Catcher's disruptive ability just by definition will consider having more of that effect and consider what's more valuable, the creature type or the flying or the mana cost. And all of those things are just going to lead to, I think, fun experiments with this card in new and exciting decks. Or just, boy, just like you said, doubling up on Curse Catchers. (laughs) That effect gets much more powerful in multiples. Yep. And if you can much more reliably play this card on one, then it allows you to amplify certain other tactics because they're more reliable. Maybe your Merfolk deck didn't go with Wastelands because your mana disruption theme was only a small theme. You only had the four Curse Catchers. Well, now if you're running six to eight Curse Catchers, maybe you up the amount of Wastelands you've got, and maybe then other cards like Daze or Spell Pierce become more attractive, and all of a sudden you're playing a different deck. Now you're playing, maybe you switch over to blue-white with Thalia to go with your eight curse catchers, and now you're playing a new, basically hybrid of, say, Noble Fish and Merfolk. This makes this card sound like kind of a gateway card to new new <laughs> archetypes. It, it, I just think it's very fascinating. Uh, the, the, anytime you take an existing card that's playable in Vintage and make a new spin on it, you're obviously opening a door. Yeah, I mean, how many appearances has Curse Catcher had in the recent months? Very few. I was only able to find one on Morphling.D. And th- that was top eight, sorry. Top eight. All right. Well, I mean, this card is not, by any stretch of the imagination, inferior. It can be played in mono-white decks, and it's flying. Sure, it's not a merfolk. That's that's weird. I'm surprised you, you've only seen one. Aren't Curse Catcher decks in some of those fish decks? Like the, the blue-white or blue-black fish decks? Well, I tell you what. Let me go back. The... Morphling.d results for Curse Catcher showed that that Merfolk deck in particular with four Cavern of Souls, it was pretty exciting, took second in one of the big NEV events, 37 players in July, the one that Nick Detweiler won with Martello Shops. That's a very promising performance for an archetype that's pretty far under the radar in Vintage. Yeah, all right. So so what's your prediction? <sighs> Boy, I'm starting to sound like exactly like what we said about Goblin Electromancer. I think this card is not going to make a big splash, but it's definitely playable. I'm going to go ahead and go with two. I'll take the over. I'll go three. <laughs> We're a lot more cagey, I think, this time around after we've got our report card. It feels like more is at stake. No, I mean, I, I don't think I've changed much. I mean, my predictions were fairly balanced last time. My, uh, predi- my predictions literally were, not counting Temporal Mastery, 0, 11, 6, 13 last time. And I just think these cards are not as good as Gristlebrand or Cavern of Souls. Well, so, so uh, that much is clear. These cards are no Gristlebrand or Cavern of Souls. That brings us to Dreadbore, which in the grand scheme of things is a very exciting card. It's a sorcery for one red and one black. Actually, to use R&D terms, I should just say red-black. The text is Destroy Target Creature or Planeswalker. Now, in the grand scheme of things, like I said, very exciting. This is the first card that says Destroy a Planeswalker on it. It's not the first card that could do that, see Vindicate, but... For one red and one black, it's very efficient at doing so. It's like a terminate and then some. And I think in the grand scheme of all formats, this card's going to see a ton of play. It's just so versatile. It's going to be very good and standard at the very least, probably in some other formats as well. It's a chase rare. Yeah. Now, in Vintage, though, 
Terminate has almost never seen play, not that I can think of, because there's multiple one-mana answers or more complex or overarching answers that are just better. And when it comes to Dreadbore, obviously the same is true. When you want to destroy a creature in Vintage, you need to look no further than, say, Swords to Plowshares, and currently the, the Rash of Lightning Bolts. And if you need to destroy a Planeswalker, it just so happens that Lightning Bolt pretty much does the same job, bolstered by Red Elemental Blast. So while I think this card has plenty of targets in Vintage, and might even be castable and reasonable, I think it's simply superseded in Vintage by Lightning Bolt and Reb for doing this job. What do you say, Steve? Well, I, I agree with you. I think that we've ne- we don't have any cards in Vintage, I think, with this casting cost that see play. You know, there are cards like Vexing Shusher that have seen play. Is there a black-red card that, that sees play? Is there a creature with that casting cost? I've got it right here, and the short answer is no. There are plenty of creatures. There are a dozen cards in the history of Magic that have this casting cost. Almost all of them are creatures, and none of them has ever seen play in Vintage. In fact, there may have been a deck that played Terminate in at some point in Vintage, but it's not a staple. and It's never made a top eight that I yeah. can see. But I think the bigger problem is that um, this is just you know, worse than Bolt. I mean, Lightning Bolt has become the new Plowshares because it kills Planeswalkers, and it kills basically almost every creature in Vintage, including, most importantly, Lodestone Golem. And and it's gotten a boost by Snapcap. So I think this card is not going to see play over, over Bolt. Even if people who play Jace more frequently use the first ability, the Fate Seal, you know, this card is not going to replace Bolt. It also has the problem of <laughs> once, you know, once they have the Jace in play, they get an ability out of it, so you're still behind. I think if you're going to try and attack a Jace, you're better off just playing a Thoughtseize to try and hit it before it resolves, as opposed to attacking it after the fact. Yeah, I, just, I, I think this will see no no vintage play. I don't think we need to beat around the bush. You're predicting exactly zero copies? Yep. All right, as am I. We'll see how this bears out. Maybe there's something new and challenging that we don't foresee, but as long as the Planeswalkers that are played are blue, <laughs> I think you're going to see Bolt and Reb do this job entirely. Let's talk then about Gutter Snipe. This is a very fun guy. This is a Goblin Shaman for red 2. 2-2. Two, two. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Gutter Snipe deals 2 damage to each opponent. Very interesting. Steve, what do you think? Well, let's start with the casting cost again. This is a 3 casting cost 2-2, two, two, so it's a gray ogre. But it's a goblin. It's I think it's a playable casting cost, especially in a goblin deck. Um, and the ability is non-trivial. It's uh, essentially Storm. You know, the more you damage, the more instants or sorceries you play, the more damage you deal. It's very much, it, it's a Storm card. I mean, it's it's, remind, it's reminiscent of Kiln Fiend or you know, Quirion Dryad, even Empty the Warrens cards that, um, isn't, isn't there another card that's recently like that? I believe you're right, but I can't think of what it is that we're thinking of. Cards that function like Storm cards, but don't have the actual mechanic. There's Storm Entity and a couple of other examples that have never really panned out. And so with Kiln Fiend, you only if you play three spells, like let's say Gush, Preordain, Force of Will, you're attacking for ten damage, right? Um, with this, you can you know those three spells deal only six damage plus the two if you can get through with this. So it's you know not as efficient as Kiln Fiend, but the damage is direct. What is the card? What is the Storm card we're thinking of? I just can't think of it. I know exactly what you're picturing and i can't think of it either i don't know what 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 would you play this this card in what deck well anything you would play kiln fiend in for example a deck that was trying to play out a small creature that was going to benefit from your subsequent disruption or damage 
I don't think you can play this in a goblin deck because those decks are traditionally not playing a sufficient amount of instants or sorceries to maximize this card. If you want to get anything close to value for your mana out of this card, you need to play three or four instants or sorceries. Once he's in play in a goblin deck, the way they're built these days can't manufacture that at all. So I think you're putting together a sort of grow slash storm deck to put this guy, if it's going to work, you're going to put him side by side, I think, with Kiln Fiend. It's a way to diversify your threats in a deck like that so that you fight your opponent on multiple fronts and still get that combo type finish if you go all in. I don't think there's a lot of value from diversifying threats. And, and Kiln Fiend has unfortunately not proven to be very effective despite being incredibly efficient. I mean, you can berserk a Kiln Fiend after playing like one or two spells and make it lethal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just better than this. I don't see this being used in goblin decks because goblins use all goblins. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to play a storm card, I-, I would just prefer to play Empty the Warrens, I guess, instead of this. Well, the comparison to Kiln Fiend is... I think, ideal in terms of evaluating it. And Kiln Fiend, while we've tested it and even tried it in the certain decks, grow variants in the past, it never panned out as a reliable inclusion. The temporary nature of the, the pump ability was just nowhere near in comparison to Quirion Dryad's durability. And yeah. when you're looking for something explosive... It just wasn't reliable enough, especially in the modern vintage environment where creature removal has become omnipresent in an environment filled with lightning bolts. I don't want to play a gray ogre that I need to untap with to to maybe kill you with. I think this card, from a design standpoint, this card has a lot of things that vintage would want. A permanent that gives you a storm-like effect that stays on the board, Yeah. but it's just not efficient enough. This card would might be, I don't want to say is... But it might be annoying in a Legacy Burn deck. Have those decks tried Kiln Fiend already, though? I don't think so. But this is different because it's direct damage. That's true. Kiln Fiend is much worse in Legacy than it is in Vintage. That's a good point. This deck, this card does not rely on getting through unblocked the way Kiln Fiend does. Kiln Fiend is frequently just going to trade with a Delver of Secrets or a Tarmogoyf, and that's going to be it. But I'm not sure that a Burn deck would ever play this over, say, Grim Lava Mancer. If this card costs one, then it might be playable. <laughs> Excellent. Very good point. Well, that brings us to it then. Is there anything other than predicting zero for this guy? Not in my book. All right. I feel the same way. Uh, Not in my crystal ball. All right. We're on record for zero gutter snipe. Let's move on to something even more exciting. (laughs) You say that like it's such a downer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. After I've done my Marvin the Martian impersonation, I think let's talk about is it charm? Which we've saved for the end because I think in both of our opinions, this card holds the most promise for Vintage. Let me first run down the stats. Is it Charm? Instant. Red, blue. Choose one. Counter target non-creature spell unless its controller pays two. Or, is it Charm deals two damage to target creature. Or, draw two cards, then discard two cards. So, also known as Spell Pierce or Shock or Careful Study. Fantastic. Three great tastes that taste great together. (laughs) (laughs) Except you don't get them together. You only get one. (laughs) I know, but that catchphrase is just too irresistible in this context. We've already covered this this casting cost because we talked about Electromancer. It's a novel casting cost for Vintage. It is. But it's not a disqualifier. Correct. I mean, there just frankly aren't enough cards with this casting cost to disqualify it. I would consider, especially given the context of an instant, which makes a big difference, mind you, that this casting cost is proven playable, even if there isn't an example of it. There are already numerous decks in the format without any tweaks to their mana base that can reliably have 
two fetch lands or two duels up on turn two to play this card. While there doesn't currently exist a deck that has a card at this mana cost and plays it, it doesn't mean that it's excluded. Right. Let's talk about the effects then. You just listed them off. Spell Pierce, that card's widely played. Yep. Shock is not played, but we're trading in some versatility for power there. And Careful Study. Now, what do you make of that ability? We will talk about them all, but what do you make of the, the effect Careful Study in Vintage? Well... I mean, Careful Study, I played Careful Study in the very first iteration of Dredge in Vintage before Future Sight was printed. And Careful Study is a very powerful card. Any card that costs one blue and draws two cards off the bat is worth a look. It's just not good enough in contemporary Vintage. And the reason is because of the card disadvantage. So the only way that you're going to use that effect really is in corner cases where you need to dig rather than get card advantage. Exactly. Or a deck that's constructed around getting certain cards into the graveyard. Yes. And we've already touched on the value of that, specifically relative to Artifacts and Goblin Welder, and this card seems to fit very well into a deck aiming for that goal. Yep. What do you make of Shock, then? Oh, well... Specifically, one that only targets creatures. You know, I think the Lightning Bolt, a huge part of Lightning Bolt right now is is being able to hit being able to hit planeswalkers. I, I think the closest comparison to this card is Fire Ice. Agreed. Okay, so how many appearances does Fire Ice Fire Ice have in recent tournaments? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know how best to search for that in okay, Fire slash Ice, I think is how they have it in Morphling.d. Let me see. I think the answer is a lot. So yeah, I got seventeen hundred and seventy results. But looking at recent vintage events, it is pretty much a staple in vintage top eights. Looking back through June, July, and the early part of August, mostly I think that has to do with the uptick in landstill out in the northeast, in which that card is a staple. So is this a landstill card? Possibly. I think that among the a number of ways that you can evaluate this card is one is its versatility in landstill at yeah. counter magic creature control and late game just digging if you need a better answer yeah. yeah when you get crucible down you're happy to discard two cards agreed i think that many land still players and maybe some people who are excited just by this card will be swapping this in for some fire ice and maybe a couple other things like echoing truth or what have you in land still right. i think it'll have a number of appearances the first the month versatility of the of this card is very attractive for land still one of the problems with land still is Having the wrong card at the wrong time, you know, like if you got the fire ice when your opponent has a Jace, for example, what do you do? Well, is it charm solves that problem? Is it charm can counter the Jace, so it need not be able to kill the Jace. It can it can counter it, right? Right. Or if you know, instead of Jace, your opponent plays Dark Confidant or Lotus Cobra, or, you know, whatever, this can kill that. So this can kill Delver. This is this is quite. I mean, the only, the main weakness with this card is uh, is of course Lodestone Golem, but that's a weakness that uh, Fire Ice also has. So I think this is vintage playable. So we've talked about Landstill, which seems like an obvious first place. What about creating new niches or in new decks? I really can't see this anywhere else, except maybe this Electromancer deck we built. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that either. I think the value from this card and the way, if we're going to underestimate this card, let's say we make a prediction and it turns out, turns out to be wrong, and we start talking about this in three months, here's how the conversation is going to begin. It's going to begin... Well, Steve, we both missed the mark on Is It Charm. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the reason is because of its versatility. We underestimated. We looked at each of the individual abilities and thought, no, those aren't quite good enough. Careful Study doesn't see any vintage play. Shock doesn't see any vintage play. This is a two-mana spell pierce. Why would they see vintage play? 
The reason is because of the versatility, the situational usefulness. I don't think we should ever underestimate that. Um, and so I'm willing to say that this is vintage playable and will see vintage play. I'm not planning to underestimate this card, as you've put it. I agree with your assessment that if we do, it'll be for that reason. But I'd like to point out specifically that I think this card could bring back a revival of sorts for control slaver type archetypes because of the third ability in conjunction with the others. But I just mean the presence of the third ability gives you a way to maximize every function of this card. What is the what's the new thirst for knowledge that people are playing? The one from Innistrad. Forbidden Alchemy. Yeah. So you're gonna play this with Forbidden Alchemy? I'm going to play this where Forbidden Alchemy never really got over the hill or over the hump. That's my point, is that right now, if you want to play a Control Slaver style list, which does not work in the current environment, one of the things you're lacking is a way to reliably get artifacts into your own graveyard. Right. It's not like that effect doesn't exist in Vintage, but it's mostly restricted or or too niche, too narrow. Back when Control Slaver was good, you could play for Thirst for Knowledge. Now that that's been restricted... The primary mechanism of just filtering your cards and getting, as you put it in our earlier discussion, that virtual card advantage, it doesn't really exist enough for that archetype. I think that Goblin Welder is poised to be a very powerful player in the metagame. It's right on the edge right now. It's playable in Strix Control. It's playable in some other builds. You put this card out there such that the Goblin Welder now can do reliable duty on turn two even think about that there's nothing in vintage you can do barring you drew your thirst that lets you play welder on one and actively weld him for something profitable on turn two there's just nothing there's no card that fills that role right now reliably that is not a terrible card in and of itself so i think this card opens up avenues for welder based control decks that can get big upside against the popular archetypes you want to fight shops well there's no better way than to play a turn one welder and start disrupting their stuff or putting in something bigger of your own you want to fight dredge well look at that main deck nile spellbomb now that you can reliably use it two three four times in game one you want to fight other control decks how hard is it for landstill and other just regular old jace decks to compete with a goblin welder bringing back your spells making them quasi uncounterable or just making certain things like this is it charm go up greatly in value so what's your prediction Kevin? my prediction that this is going to show up in multiple archetypes as a replacement in landstill as a value card in other control decks that aren't welder decks just a value card from an experimentation standpoint and it's going to forge its own niche in decks that have gone by the wayside historically i think when we come back to do this report card that we're going to see, let's say, 10 appearances of Is It Charm in Top 8. Oh, oh, bold prediction season here. You're like you're like the NFL sports commentators on the internet. I, I'm long on Is It Charm here. I think, I think this card is in it for the long haul. I'm going to say, well, let me ask you something. How many Landstill decks roughly appear in Top 8s? Oh, geez. I'm going to try to answer that question by doing a card search on the card Standstill. And I get, let's see, in 2012, it looks like I get more than 20 results. Okay, but I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go four. It'll be four copies of this in top eights hmm. months from now. A little more conservative than I expected, but hey, we'll see. Well, I think I think that like maybe like a quarter to half of Landstill pilots will try it. You know, I think. Good point. Um, some, it, it a lot will depend on whether some of the thought leaders, you know, like Chris Pecula or Machusek, you know, pick it up. Yep. They do. We could see a lot of them, you know, we could see more. Um, but I think, you know, my prediction is probably around the 
When does the next set come out? The release date for Return to Ravnica. Well, it's interesting that you... Ravnica, the second set. Oh, Gate Crash, you mean. Yeah. So Return to Ravnica is September 29. Gate Crash is January 26. I'm in like the four to six range. I'm comfortable with four is my prediction. Okay. I'm definitely under 10. Definitely taking the under on 10. Okay, that's cool. I think you're not crazy for that by any stretch. I think that that's... We'll come back in late January and evaluate that. Yeah. <laughs> that's five months from now. But... Well, I think it's pretty clear that this is definitely the most interesting thing on the list for us. And by the time we come back around to give our scorecard on this, I expect that we're only going to be talking about is it charm and maybe a little bit of judges familiar. But we'll yeah. see. We'll see. We've been wrong before. Let's take a look at our previous scorecard. I, I do think this card is the card that has the most potential of the cards that I've seen. I hope that my scoring reflects that. By potential, I don't necessarily mean like this is the card that I think might be the card that has the most potential in terms of like potential to be really interesting is Electromancer. But I just don't. But I mean, in a theoretical sense, it has the most potential. I think the the realistic potential is is it charm. I think I see your point exactly. There's more upside to Electromancer, but this card is it charm is just well positioned right off the bat to make an impact. I started to say it's worth noting that we're dealing with only a partial spoiler at this point. We're looking at a point in time where there are 76 of 274 cards spoiled from Return of Ravnica. So this may be this may end up being only part one of our set review. Okay, this just in, we've got bonus content for you. It having just passed midnight in the east coast of the United States, we've got new preview cards from Return to Ravnica, and on the list is one Dryad Militant. Check this out. Dryad Soldier for one Celestia hybrid mana. If an instant or sorcery card would be put into a graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead not only that, but it's a 2-1 for one mana. Steve, mm. this is incredible. Initial thoughts. We've both just seen this card. This card is awesome. This is the, this is the hater, hater bear of all time. It's, this it's, is it's, obviously designed to host Snapcaster Mage. Yes. And it's not even a bear, though. That's the thing. You and I have gone on at length, even in this show, about how good grizzly bears yes. are, disruptive bears, and this is a 2-1 for 1. We've been begging for a 1 casting cost creature. This is Savannah Lions with Leyline of the Void. <laughs> well, uh, not exactly Leyline. Not exactly. But exactly. it does stop instants and sorceries. The trick is, in Vintage, the, the first thing I thought was, this is great. In Vintage, though, if you want to fight Dredge, does this do enough? Oh my God, this does it. How? How does this do enough? I, I think that this isn't. This is one of those cards where it's not necessarily that it does enough because no card does enough. Leyline the Void doesn't do enough, but it helps. For example, it will take out Cabal Therapy, which means you can protect your hand. They can't flash back Cabal Therapy. They can't. Um, this will actually once the Dark Blast goes to the graveyard, it's exiled unless it's killing this creature. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. And it, it, of course, it totally neuters Dread Return, which has disappeared. This just reinforces that trend. Based on what you've just said, specifically about the interactions of, of this against Dark Blast and Cobble Therapy, this card plays fantastically with Yixlid Jailer. Oh, yeah. If you're bringing in both of them, this one protects the Jailer, which is just the nail in the coffin. And if they spend energy fighting this, because it's in play, they Dark Blast it or something, it might mean, it might give you just that much time that they're not therapying you for jailer yeah which can mean which can make the difference between jailer hitting play and staying in play or not 
I think this card's great. Uh, does this go in any decks now, though? Being Celestia is a real drawback in Vintage. Well, think about it. White-Green has had one severe problem. It has no answers to Dredge. This isn't an answer to Dredge, per se, but it helped. This is now can be lined up you know, with Grapdigger's Cage to give White-Green more hope <laughs> in that matchup. And it's so broadly abusable. I mean, this card is really annoying if you're playing uh, a Gush deck or a blue deck, or especially a Snapcaster deck. Yeah, this dovetails a lot with Grafdigger's Cage in that it has Splash Hate against Snapcaster Mage and Yawgmoth's Will. Yes. And so, you're right, it, this is not going to get the job done against a Vintage Control deck per se. It's not like when you play this, they can't win. But it's just that one bit more of disruption. They can't get that second use out of their Lightning Bolt now. Or their Yawgmoth's Will can't get them that big comeback play now because this guy's in play. And I also love the fact that that's exactly right. And this this means that Ancestral Recall is only going to be used once for sure. Yep. You don't have to worry about, you know, that being Yawgmoth's Will backed or whatever the case may be. I also love the fact how versatile this card is. This card can go in green-black or green-blue deck as well as a, a white Hate Bears deck or a Noble Fish deck. And it's, I mean, this is, this ironically might be one of the most efficient, fast threats in any of those decks. <laughs> That's the incredible part is we've been stuck thinking about these hate bears as turn two plays. Exactly. And this card shatters that mold. I love the fact, like we said with Yixlid Jailer, that this plays so well with all the other hate bears. You play this on one and you can still play your Gadok Teague, your Thalia, your whatever bear for the situation on two. Kasali Pride Mage. Kasali Pride Mage, Scavenging Ooze, whatever it is, that they play so well together that this is just, this makes all those cards into a big one-two punch, which is incredible. Exactly. This, I think that's a very important point, which is that this is, card isn't competing for those slots. It's a complement to those slots. As it stands, the only thing those kind of decks have on one that's reliable is Grafdigger's Cage. I would say Thalia is, 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 is to some extent playable. So, yeah, that's right. She's okay. You know what else is interesting? You can Elvish Spirit Guide this card into play. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Man, this opens up so much. This might be the big hit for Vintage out of this set. I know we talked a fair bit about Is It Charm, and it has some interesting applications and maybe subtle. This card is not subtle, I don't think. No, it, it, I mean, this card's a real, it's a, it's, a, it's a legitimate threat for damage. Like we were saying, turn one this, turn two, Kasali Prime Mage is three damage off the bat. And that that's enough to kill a Jace, too. <laughs> wow, I didn't even think about that. The way this card threatens Jace is incredible, too. Because not only are you cutting off your opponent's true value from Snapcaster Mage, but you may be forcing them to just play it just to trade with this. Yeah, exactly. Incredible it, value. When they play their Snapcaster Mage, they're not going to get anything out of it as long as this came into play first. The, the one thing, I, I, the one weakness of this card is that it is hit by Mental Misstep. But I think that's actually fine because what more do you want to do than protect this with your own Mental Misstep? I was just going to say, that's a, a metric that aggro decks can fight even. They can fight fair on. Yeah. Wow, this is incredible. I'm also wondering... This opens up not just, we've been talking about green-white style beats decks that are trying to be very aggressive, but this also opens up some space for more mid-rangey decks like Brian DeMar's Bant deck, because now you've got a play on one that slows your opponent enough that your later plays become better. Not only that, but this is a really interesting singleton as a tutor target for that green Green tutor. Green Sun Zenith, sure. This is a turn one Green Sun Zenith target. Instead oh, of Noble Hierarch. Wow, you're right. That's incredible. And, oh my word, and this plays, still plays very well with Noble Hierarch also because you play this on one and 
Hierarch on two, and that kills Jace in one hit. Which they won't see coming. Yeah, wow. This card does so many things for the format. That's incredible. Does it take any other cards out of Dredge? Have you pulled up a Dredge list to look? No, it really, not that I can think of. The Dread Return, the Cobble Therapy, which prevents from going in. Dark Blast, which means if they kill any other creature other than this, they're not going to get to recur that Dark Blast. Well, again, you just you just stop the Dark Blast with the Mental Misstep, and then it's gone. It's gone. Oh, <laughs> yes. Very good point. Very good point, actually. When you are loading up on this and missteps, you're right. That's incredible. This card does so much. So just like everything else, the trick right now is to find the deck that this goes in. I don't think that this by itself is capable of putting green X beats over the top. It's a Dryad Soldier, which does not help you very much when it comes to Cavern of Souls. What's Thalia's creature type? Human, right? But Human Soldier. Is she Human Soldier? That's incredible. Hold on, let me double check. Yeah, Human Soldier. Wow. Dovetails pretty nicely with Thalia, then. Yeah, it, it's uncounterable with Cavern of Souls. <laughs> wow. That's... Jeez. Oh, I don't know how big of a deal that's going to be, but it's it's obviously relevant. This card is very disruptive for blue decks. I mean, it's a fast threat. It's a one-two punch. It's not going to hurt a deck like Landstill, which doesn't rely on Yawgmoth's will or standstill, but it is going to irritate Gush decks, which do want rely on Yawgmoth's will more than other decks. It's a much better Graph Digger's Cage against decks like that. Imagine this card against against like the vintage Mark Lenikra's deck, right? He would definitely would not like this card. Mm-hmm. I also really like... I think this card is really brilliant. The cards that it does not remove are very interesting. So it doesn't remove, just for example, Black Lotus, Mm -hmm. although it removes Ancestral Recall, which means that, you know, in terms of like setting up a Doomsday, it doesn't hurt Doomsday as much, but it's going to punish the Gush Control decks a lot more. Fascinating. Well, it's pretty clear to me that this is another card in a long line, like just like Grafdigger's Cage, that was not designed for Vintage, but which has an impact because Vintage shares so many strengths with current trends in other formats like flashback and snapcaster mage what a beautiful card too i mean therese nelson this really evokes that mid-1990s card feel to me like it, it this this seems like it could have just been pulled right out of alliances or homelands or something like that yeah i like that too very beautiful well, this is some fun bonus content. I wonder, shall we go to predictions at this point? I, I think that uh, you raised a very good question. Where exactly does this go? It goes into white trash for sure. 100% not even close. Yep. I think it also goes into green red, green, red beads. Not even not even close for sure. But that's barely a deck at all. I, I'm just saying, it, it, this will go into any of the beats decks. Yep. It's, an, it's, an auto, it's the best beats creature. <laughs> it's a one mana, two one disruptive creature. Yeah. I just wanted to say bear because that's all we've had before. We've never had that. <laughs> Force of we, habit. Finally, we've never had a one casting cost disrupting two one. Isn't that what we asked for? It is. Our, they've given it to us on a platter, a silver platter. You know what's funny is... They've given us the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. <laughs> a couple of years ago, you might have to go back pretty far for my point to stand on its own here, but how long do you have to go back to when we wouldn't even look twice at this card? There was a point... It's, you have to go back a few years, but there's a point where this would not have been disruptive very much in Vintage. Well, imagine what this does to Gifts Ungiven. This is a, this card single-handedly would neuter Gifts Ungiven. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. So, I mean, the Gifts package, recall, was Time Walk, yeah. Riku, Yawgmoth's Will Tinker. Yeah. All gone! <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's incredible. I'll RFG your Yawgmoth's Will and Tinker. You can have Time Walk and Riku. <laughs> Man, maybe we can unrestrict Merchant Scroll. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say maybe we could unrestrict Gifts Ungiven. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite ready for that, but still. <clears throat> anyway, 
let's talk prediction time, though. Well, I think we first need to figure out where it's going to go. I, it definitely goes into all the beats decks. I think it can be put into uh, the Bant deck, like you said. This is a nice boon to the bad deck. Yep. I think it goes at least in the sideboard of things like Bug. Yeah, and I was also going to say this could be very useful for Noble Fish. Yeah. Does Noble Fish, how much does Noble Fish use Snapcaster? Very little, if at all. And then this is natural fit for that. Yeah, I wonder if this will go in place of something like Shardless Agent, which has been a recent inclusion in Noble Fish. I wonder if... Noble Fish has no black or black or red. This is just the best answer to Dredge. Dredge is really digging itself a hole. The irony is this is a damned if you do, damned if you don't because the slower the dredge decks become, the more effective this be, this is. Because this this is just great. Great for Noble Fish. Not only this, but the more effective everything becomes. If you slow dredge down, Paul talked about this in our Vintage Championship podcast, where if you slow dredge down by just a turn, by taking out dread return, it makes you, as a control player, for example, or like a Jace deck, have to worry about so much less. It's not just one turn. It's a exponential effect with the answers that it allows you to have access to to get out of any one situation so for oath of druids this card does have an effect although it's not one that you would want to count on i don't want to have a guy in play when they're activating oath the gristlebrand decks i think they, they can attack and kill you with gristlebrand but i think some of them run a tendril if that tendrils is exiled and you've done a significant amount of damage to them you could i've played many games against uh, gristlebrand decks where their life is hugely significant and if they, if in oathing and revealing most of their library, it exiles most of their library, they're not going to be able to Yawgmoth's rule. They're not going to be able to Tendrils of Agony if those are put in the graveyard. And don't forget, they're not going to be able to oath down to no library and then get the big turn out of it. Back, yeah. Across whatever the, the memories journey. Memories journey. Yeah, memories journey. Good point. So if you are an aggressive deck that has green and maybe white for plows in it and it gives you a new access on which to fight Oath because they can't get the great long-term benefit of dumping their library into their graveyard. If they Oath up Gristlebrand and you plow it, they can Oath up another Gristlebrand, but what about after that? They're running a gambit then. If you have another plow or a way to deal with that Gristlebrand, then they're shut off. They're not going to be able to get to Oath again for value. And this card can do some damage in the meantime because it's so efficient. That's right. You can get their life low such that you can create a gambit for them you maybe you have a different way to fight oath now. Maybe you have creatures that are good pre and post oath. You play yeah. you play this guy. You play Quasali Pride Mage, and maybe yeah. one or two other examples such that you have a team out when they oath up Gristlebrand. This is not a card that you're really terrified to have in your your main deck against oath if you're playing Noble Fish or Bant or whatever. Gives you other outs. Yep. Yeah, you could easily play this on one Pride Mage on two Shardless Agent on three into some <laughs> yeah. other bear. And you're fronting eight or nine damage there. They might get Oath online, but if you have a plow to go with that, then their first or their second Oath activation becomes possibly a serious gambit. I would say, imagine the Oath player has one Gristlebrand in their hand. Oh, jeez. That's <laughs> yeah. The, the Oathing is a very risky proposition. They're, they're, they're just risking just dying. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I think that's just one other reason why this card interacts, just like Grafdigger's Cage, with every deck in the format in some manner. And the fact that it's such an aggressive creature means that's all upside. I mean, I remember watching a game where Paul Mastriano had the win with Oath, except the Oath creature was his last card. Well, this just... Those things are not high-probability events in and of themselves. When you add them up, cumulative effect is non-trivial. That's a very good point. 
Very interesting. I've been in that same situation. Oath, for as reliable as it is and for as endgame, as good of an endgame as it creates, every once in a while you get that situation where because you're oathing so much, you've cut yeah. yourself off of options. And if, if you oath into the, the monster, the gristle brand, in the bottom eight, nine, ten cards of your library, you're not going to be able to activate the gristle brand to draw seven cards for the card advantage. Right. So you might not be able to protect it. Right. And that, that's non-trivial especially it, since this card is going to remove the memory's journey. You could be in, like, what, the bottom 11, and you can't oath. You can't a- activate it again, activate the Gristle Band. Ah, man, this is just more... Last time we talked about sideboard cards and, and dra- graveyard hate specific to Dredge, it got me thinking about the whole saturation of any one effect in Vintage, and this just reinforces that. The more relevant cards we get that interact with dominant strategies in the way this does... It's not a deal breaker. It doesn't prevent a strategy from working, but it hurts it just enough that now the aggressive deck has more options against Oath of Druids, a traditionally terrible matchup. It just makes for a much more interactive metagame for Vintage and rewards players who study the format, know what they're going to face, and are prepared. It makes the format a lot more interactive. Yeah. A lot of people say dredge matches are not interactive. This card creates a very interesting game state. You're going to have many things to think about and contend with. Mm-hmm. I know that you have often desired meaningful choice as one of your metrics by which to measure the value of a game, and I think that extends, well, I know you do too, but that extends to deck construction and deck selection as well. And cards like this just contribute greatly to that skill. I was looking at things like Robin Heretic, you know, <laughs> as, as cards that Mono White could use against Dredge. This is a gigantic upgrade. Awesome. Yep, this is a very exciting card. Okay, so what's your prediction? Oh, boy. With as exciting as it is, I'm just wondering, are we going to see this in sideboards that we're not expecting? Oh, that would really increase its numbers. Exactly. What if Rug Delver? What, what were the numbers on Digger's cage? Just remind me. Oh, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. everywhere. It was huge. This it clearly isn't that much, but... But you're right. This could go in Rug Delver as a sideboard card. I mean, that's amazing. What does Rug Delver currently do for Dread? Very little. They just don't have very good answers. So this is a straight up well, scavenging news. Oh, this is this is definitely as good as that. Yeah. I mean, and it works so well in tandem. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, boy. I That's the thing is, with so much potential sideboard play from even unexpected archetypes, like a, a gush deck with green for fast bond and black, like a blue-black-green gush deck that's maybe yep. running Yixlid Jailers and Cages right now, might consider Jailer plus this guy. Well, I don't think this would be in Gush, because Gush decks rely on Yawgmoth's will too much. I see where you're going with something, that. Yeah, you're, you're right. That's that's not a great example. But still, something like that, where a deck that's made... There have been a number of controls that have emerged recently that don't use Yawgmoth's will. If there's been one meta trend, one of a few meta trends in Vintage over the last year and a half, two years has been the diminution of Yawgmoth's will. Yeah. Landstill, Brian Mars's Bant deck. Rug Delver. Rug Delver. Yep. These decks don't run black, don't run Yawgmoth's will. Yeah. This card can fit into those those strategies. If the Landstill deck is running green, it could certainly sideboard this. With Digger's Cage, I do think Rug Delver will probably use this, if what you said is right. If they're just using Scavenging Ooze for Dredge, that's hardly enough. I think that Rug Delver players are probably pretty excited about this as for Dredge. 
I'm going to try and say what would be the maximum we might expect and what would be the minimum. The minimum, I would expect, you know, five, six at a minimum. I'd be shocked if it was below that. Agreed. I think the max is something like 20. Oh, I think max would be something like 35. Because I think you're overestimating based on Graft Digger's Cage because Graft Digger's Cage was f- still far more universal than this. I, I think the thing to remember that this is white or green. The decks this isn't white, blue decks. It can, it can go into green, red decks, you know, green, black decks. Yeah, don't don't go so high as Graf Digger's Cage though. I'm not. I'm saying that that would be like the max. Okay. I, I probably I'm gonna say 13. I was just about to say. I mean, the number in my head was 15. I would err much higher than the single digits for this. I think it's gonna be a sideboard card in addition to a main deck card. And as a main deck card, it's gonna lead to some more top eight performances by aggro decks. I think this is going to allow decks like Rug Delver to get over on Dredge a couple more times, which is going to put more of them in top eights. Yep. And Bant. I think that it's very interesting to see the effect this could have on Bant's matchup against Dredge. You want to go with 13 if I go with 15? How's that sound? I'm afraid you're going to win this one. Well, that's that's why... We'll find, I, out. We'll find out. I'll stick with 13. I, I think 13 is a safe, a safe, moderate guess. I think you're right. I think I, if I had to just look at 13, I'd definitely take the over on that. But how much over is anyone's guess at this point? Wow, so Dryad Militant, very exciting. Welcome to Vintage. We like you. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess what I said earlier about us having uh, part two to our Ravnica set review is kind of obviated at this point. But who knows? Maybe we'll have many more exciting cards to talk about for the rest of this set. As it stands with Return to Ravnica, our question of the week then is, what is the best Return to Ravnica card for Vintage that's been spoiled thus far? Maybe we covered it on this show, maybe we didn't. But we want to hear from you what you're excited about for Vintage. As always, you can follow us or tweet us on Twitter at ManyInsanePlays, or email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we wish you many insane plays. Vintage is not gay protective game! <laughs> <laughs>